Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you go farther, faster, and longer without injuries, gut problems, or giving up your favorite foods. This was originally recorded as the first Ask Me Anything for the 21-Day Run Faster Challenge. The audio quality is not great. I was house-sitting, so I did not have any of my normal equipment, and it was recorded on a cheap pair of earbuds. Otherwise, the content's really good, and if it really bothers you, all of the topics are time-stamped, so you can jump directly to what you're looking for. I hope you enjoy it. So, first off is from Tara. Tips to avoid getting discouraged when you don't hit your A, B, or C goal for a race, but you just end up in the didn't die category. And I actually really like Brian's response to this, which was, my biggest strategy personally is always to have a few races scheduled or in mind. And if I don't perform, I think of it as a training run for the next race. So that was a great strategy. The other option or other thing I was thinking of, some of it is likely going to come down to goal setting in the first place. And you can dive into this more as time goes, but like ask yourself if you really set a realistic goal. And this is where our like A, B, and C goals should be well set up and well dictated. Your A goal should be if everything goes right, um, nothing really went wrong, everything went to plan, you had no, no niggles, no problems, no hydration issues, and you still hit your goal. Like that is usually your A goal. It is very like high on the reach spectrum, but achievable. And then your B goal is a bit of a stretch goal, but like much more realistic. And your C goal is like if a lot of things went wrong, right? So it might just be finish or don't get injured, right? Like both of those are kind of finish and don't get injured or my equal C goals for my race that I'm doing this year. Cause I haven't really done this before. I would love to do like, I'm going to set some time goals once I see training happening and be able to stretch, but I need to have that like realistic baseline, right? So some of this is going to come down to goal setting in general. And then I'll also say sometimes it's okay to get discouraged and like it's, the stuff is hard. It's normal. You put in a bunch of training and a bunch of work to do a thing and it didn't turn out like you wanted it to turn out. It, it's kind of realistic and normal that you might be a little frustrated and you didn't do well as you as as well as you wanted it's okay to feel a little bit sad about it big thing is don't quit and you'll do better next time um someone i really follow in the fitness industry his name is jordan syatt he was gary b's trainer and as a result like he was very popular in the in instagram and everything and he puts out this one video every few months and it basically says the only way to lose this game is to quit because no matter what, if you have an off day or an off week or even an off month, if you get back on it, you will continue to make progress in the long term. Just don't quit. And that is kind of the same deal here. So it's okay to get discouraged. It's okay to get frustrated. Just don't quit. Next one is from Fabi. Is how many, how much recovery days are needed after an ultra? This is more complicated than I can really answer here. It depends on the person, it depends on how hard you pushed, and it depends on the distance of the ultra, right? Like if we're looking at somebody who's run 100 races and is doing a, a 50K, it probably isn't gonna take you all that long. I am expecting quite a bit of recovery 
after my 50 miler in November because it's long and it's my first one. Right. So it's kind of where where you are and what it is. Hills are going to play a big role in here. But let's talk about like what might be a factor when it comes to recovery. A lot of it comes down to muscle breakdown. When your muscles, when you're you're running that far and working that hard, your muscles tear apart. And you end up with a lot of these micro tears in your muscles that need to repair. So that's one thing that's going on. You, as a result, you will also end up with elevated levels of certain things like creatine kinase in your blood. And as a big marker of muscle breakdown and your body also needs to clear that, your kidneys need to clear that. And this is one of the ways that, like this is the basic way that people end up with like severe higher levels of rhabdo. A lot of ultra runners when they finish or cross the finish line will technically have some level of rhabdomyolysis um, based on their like CK, their creatine kinase levels. However, if you've hydrated really well, it might not be an issue. Your muscle breakdown is significant enough to technically trigger like crossover, but it might not actually cause you problems. However, if you're really dehydrated, then you can end up with issues. So it all comes down to your training, how well you fed, how well you hydrated, how hard this was, how much of a push it was for you, and elevation is going to play a big factor as well. So I don't know how long it's going to take you to recover after an ultra, but those are the things you'd be looking at. If you're trying to expedite recovery, moving is usually going to be a big one. So not running, moving. So walking, mobility work are a big thing. They've actually shown that moving the muscle and again, not straining it, not stressing it, but moving it tends to help recover a little faster. So walking would be a good way, like downgraded, down efforted way to improve your recovery. And you'll see this a lot with strength training as well. So people who do a ton of strength training will do like heavy sets of bicep curls a couple of days a week. And then on their off days, they'll do like 20 to 30 reps of like banded curls. And it can actually improve recovery and um, hasten muscle growth. And you can see the same thing when with an activity like running. So getting on a bike and cycling a bit or walking or anything that is not quite as stressful as running, but still keeps you moving can be super helpful. And then the other factors are going to be what I harp on all the time, hydration, protein, food, overall calories, carbohydrate, and enough fat to support your hormones. If we don't have those things, you're not going to recover. It just isn't going to happen. So you need to make sure that you're getting your like base nutrients in or else recovery is going to be impossible. Next question is actually from Esther. What makes an ideal ultra athlete? And as I answered in the group, like, I don't think this is a real thing. I think like, if we're going to be, if we're trying to design someone from scratch, they're going to probably be tall. <laughs> they're going to have primarily slow twitch muscle fibers. So like a much more propensity for endurance and a big VO2 max, like a big ability to carry oxygen and like have a lot of output. The only way you can actually dictate that is by choosing your parents. So clearly, you're, you are, you have what you have, right? I, I don't have any of those three things. My VO2 max isn't great. I can't breathe very well. I'm definitely short. Most of my muscle, I look at, look at my legs when you have a chance, like most of my muscle fibers are definitely fast twitch. Like I'm a much better sprinter than I am a runner. Um, who cares, right? Like you can be your best athlete and that's really what you're looking for. Brian, 
Brian's been on fire today. His response was an ideal ultra athlete is an athlete crazy enough and stubborn enough to push through and beyond 26.2 miles. Yep. That's about it. And like you can only run, uh, like you can only do as well as you can do. You have to train the like your abilities and then just have a lot of grit, Actually, most of it. So kind of where it is. Esther, have some exercises to strengthen weaker arches, flat or little arches. Yes. Um, talked about this a couple ago, but just to like reiterate, um, strengthening your feet. So the best, like easiest, simplest thing you can do is just not wear shoes around your house or like minimize and like wear a lot of flat stuff, right? So that will force your feet to work. Um, I never wear shoes unless I'm running. And we can absolutely have this balance. Like I know there's this big movement towards sandal, running sandals and all this stuff. They absolutely give me like major Achilles problems. I've barely worn shoes for the better part of a decade. My feet are really strong. If I try to run distance or hills in that, my Achilles and calf are hateful. So I have no interest in making that improvement. So I run with shoes on. But my feet are pretty strong and stable because I walk around a lot I train a lot and do a lot of stuff either barefoot or in something like vans like really thin flat things right so that's that's one option and then if we're trying to directly strengthen your feet you can do things like um there's a there's a hundred names for this so I'm trying to figure out the one that you might actually find towel pulls or like towel scrunches or towel crunches um with your feet and you'll have a towel on a like flat surface You'll have your foot at one end of it, so towel here, and then this is the towel, this is your foot, and you're going to pull the towel and scrunch it underneath you with your foot. And then once that becomes easy, you can put like a weight at one end of the towel and scrunch it here. Soup can's a good place to start, five pound dumbbell, whatever, and that will absolutely strengthen your arch. And then another thing you can do is an exercise called short foot, which I absolutely cannot explain to you. It's, it's like a three to four minute video on YouTube. It's a PT exercise. Basically, you try and shorten like this part of your foot, the meat of your foot, without squeezing your toes. It's a really weird exercise, but it works really well if you can find the actual muscles you're activating. Um, start with the towel thing. It's way easier to find. And then if you want to play with the short foot thing, great but it's a much like harder exercise to dial in johanna what are your thoughts on zero drop versus not and the benefits of each zero has worked for me for shorter distances up to 15 miles so far but i do sometimes deal with plantar pain when i get up there in miles i think that a dogma around any shoe is insane um is the short answer of this the benefits to zero drop like they work really well for some people Okay, a couple thoughts. So zero drop will foster for a lot of people a little um, a tendency to strike with your midfoot a little more. So if you have a big tendency for stress fractures, then they've shown that that might be might be helpful. It can also make it a lot worse because if you don't correct your like if your gait doesn't move towards midfoot and you go towards thin zero drop shoes, you're putting even more stress on your bones. But I think it's 80% of people, if they switch to a thinner zero drop shoe, they end up naturally moving more towards a midfoot strike. And as a result, it puts less stress on your bone structure. So you could end up like helping if you have a bunch of stress fracture issues. That said, stress fractures are also tend to be nutrient deficiency. So look at that as well. If you have um, 
minimal ankle mobility, um, like ankle flexion, uh, tight calves, for lack of a better term, and like Achilles pain, you probably want to have a bit of a drop. And that's really what it comes down to. You should find what works for you and works for your gait. There is no one right way to do it, and you can kind of play with it. As I said, like I really like um, like non-existent shoes. Like the shoes I wear most of the time are like four millimeters thick. They're those like zero sandals that you build yourself. Um, and then when I'm doing road training, I'm absolutely fine using ultra escalantes. Love them; they're fantastic. As soon as I get on trails and we end up with hills, I have horrendous Achilles pain and like calf struggles. So I wear Solomon Ultra Glides. They have like an eight millimeter drop and a ton of cushion. And that's what I do. And I don't think there's any need to like have dogma towards it. There are some benefits. There are things that can help you out, but you got to just fit, play with what works for your gait. Next question, Tara. Do you have any hiking tips? Are tiny steppy steps or big strides better um, to improve your speed? Again, still in Brian's proper stride may change uh, based on how steep the trail is. I do medium strides on flatter trails and tiny steps on steep trails, like going straight up a black diamond ski slope. Boom, short to the point. Um, you need to do what feels natural to you. Big strides are fine as long as you have the like muscular control to use them well. If not, shorter steps are typically going to be a bit better. What you really don't want to do is overreach and then cause yourself to use the wrong muscles to drive up a hill. Your primary driver should be your glutes, specifically your glute max, so the big muscle in your butt and your quads. If you are ending up a lot in your hamstrings, it means you're probably overreaching and trying to pull yourself up the mountain, which is not gonna help you. So you need to find the stride that allows you to like use your quad and glute the most, which as Brian said, is probably going to be a shorter stride the steeper your hill goes. Debbie asked for recommendations for a new hydration vest. Uh, I'm not really a big gearhead, never have been, but the one I really like, and I've tried three of them because I have a weird body type for this sport, is this Ultimate Direction Blue Thing. It has done very well for me. Um, I had a, some cheap thing and then I had a Nathan thing, and when I ran, I ended up clipping the bottles with my thumbs. This sits a little more in front and I don't have that problem. I would go to a place like REI and try on 12 of them and see what seems to fit you best. Uh, it is all about fit. And then if it fits well, then you can like look at accessories, but needs to, it needs to fit. Christine, is there an interval training guide for dummies? If it's not super simple, I'm not gonna do it. So fair. <laughs> I tried to break it down as best I could in that interval training doc. I realized it was still five pages. That should give you, and I, I edited it head, heavily. Um, I could lie to you and say everyone should be doing this, but it's just not true. Sure, most people should could probably benefit from some VO2 max cycles early in their season. Like I'm five months out. I'm doing that right now because I don't have a great top end. A very good basic version of that is three minutes hard. And by hard, like consistent pace, but at the very end, you should kind of feel like death. And then three minutes easy. And doing that closer to your race is silly because you're not going to have to use like this high end VO max, so just not specific to your race. But if you have four, five, six months to prep, then doing that to build yourself a bigger container to work everything else into is a great idea. If you're really new to speed work, 
then same idea, but one minute on, one minute off can actually improve your VO2 max. If you've been training or have a longer training history, it's just too short. And then most people would benefit from some kind of lactate or tempo interval. And this can look really different depending on the distance, but 10 to 20 minutes on, five to 10 minutes easy. And you're looking for like an eight out of 10 effort, something that you could like, would push for like a 10K pace, maybe a little faster, depending on how fit you are. Do that two to three times per week for six to eight weeks. And you could also intersperse them as you get closer to your race. If you look at people training heavily, tempo intervals are just like the bread and butter of speed work. It is, Elliot Kipchoge does tons of them as does every like high level ultra athlete. Lactate burning tempo intervals are everywhere for a reason. So that, that'd be a big one too. Short version, like if you want to get faster, like you kind of need to see where your deficit is and do a little bit of research to figure out what you actually need. And then what will help you without pushing you towards overtraining. But, and, or you could hire a coach and they can design them for you and figure it out. But biggest thing, like that, that document should have all you need to kind of point out where your issues are. And the closer you are to your race, the less intense your intervals probably should be, unless you're trying to race something like a 5k. If we're in this trail and ultra space, the closer you get to your race in general, this is true for training. If you're, the closer you get to your event, the more specific your work should be. And in the ultra world, that typically means not doing wind sprints, right? Like hundred meter repeats are not going to help you. Bobby, how to get out of a funk? Um, how do I get motivation back when I'm too tired to keep up? So I have a lot of answers here and she and I talked, but how, sometimes you just have to push through it. Some days are going to be tough. I, I did not have, I did not have a good training session today um, as I shared everywhere. Cause I think it's important to share like both sides of the coin. Um, but like, you can also try to figure out why you're in a funk. Do you, do you actually enjoy your training? If not, why not? Is it because you're not making progress? Do you have unrealistic expectations? Do you just need a break? Like, do you need a day off? It's fine. Um, this is all part of the mental game. Um, as I said, like, I didn't want to do my training today. I knew it was going to be a bad, a bad set, or I knew I was going to feel bad doing it in the parking lot. I did it anyway. It was fine. Uh, I got in four good ones and a kind of shit one and I need to sleep more. I need to eat more and hydrate better. All the stuff I tell everyone to do. Uh, it's been a weird week. Like it's what it is. I'm usually pretty good about it, but not right now. And then in addition to all that, my allergies are trying to cut my eyes out of my face in addition to making my nose like run constantly. So next week will be better. But one thing I had to do today is slow the pace down and that's that's okay. I still like created the adaptation and that is the thing you can do if you're struggling and you need you want to push through this thing anyway, you're a few weeks out, push your pace back a little bit. We're looking here a lot for effort levels than you are for pace because you're trying to create this adaptation. And if you're having an off day or an off week, your body doesn't really care how fast you can run on your best day. It's not your best day. So find that like effort push, right? Instead of pushing through it, you could also take a rest day if you have a bunch of like stuff going on and you're just tired and like family stuff's been weird maybe you just need a day off i was supposed to go for a short run tomorrow i'm going to take a day off because i have a lot to do and 
it's very clear that I probably would benefit more from a nap than I would from the like 40 minute training cycle. So sometimes you might just need a minute. And then the other thing with motivation is like, try and figure out why you were doing this in the first place. Like you signed up for this race for a reason. What was it? And then try to reconnect to that or find someone for support. It's one of the reasons I really like started this challenge. I know a lot of people, myself included, are in the middle or in the beginning of a fairly hefty training cycle because that's just what time of year it is for this sport. And I think we could all use a smidgen of support. So find someone to, to give you that. Reach out to the group, um, reach out to your friends, talk to family. I, I don't care, but like have someone who helps you out a little bit. Gilmar, trail running techniques to become a more skilled trail runner. Uh, she specified afterwards that is like, this is very running focused. Um, I have, a, I have a few things here. So this is probably like too broad, like in this would be too broad in general for like me to be really helpful here. But a lot of it depends where you're coming from. The biggest difference for most people between a marathon and a 50K is going to be fueling. It's five miles, which is not too bad, but it is definitely enough time to turn even a great marathon plan into a fast track towards like bonking or hitting the wall. And then if you add some hills into that, it could literally like double the time, even though it's only five more miles. So hydration and fueling are number one at becoming better on the trails and better in the mountains. Just nail it down. And that's, that's our big focus next week. It's going to be hydration and fuel. If you cannot get that stuff together, then I don't care how good your speed training is. It's not going to work. And then two is going to be agility. So roots and rocks and holes just love to come up and bite ankles. So the best way to get better at this is to run trails. If you don't have great access to that, then the second best option is to do something like go get an agility ladder and do some drills. And I like an agility ladder costs like $14. And you can easily learn to, to make your feet a little faster. I used them all the time when I was doing sprinting sports. And they help more than you think they do. So that could be super useful. And then another factor that could help with like running for trails is going to be strength. I know it doesn't necessarily relate to techniques. But it's more if your quads are stronger, then you're going to be a little better on the hills. right? It's, it's just part of it. Esther, what drinks do you say at the grocery store are best to drink when not in training? Gatorade, Powerade, coconut water. Water, probably. Um, really whatever you like, right? Like if we're if we're looking at things to drink when when you're not in training, then like the A number one should be water. Like most of your things should be should be water you can flavor it you can do whatever like any anything you really enjoy is fine the biggest thing is if you're thinking about fueling i like to think generally as your like calories per day as a budget and if you have a fairly larger budget you can afford uh, like afford some other stuff right so like be that more sodas or whatever um and if not then you should probably get more of your carbohydrates through things like potatoes and rice and whole foods and all that stuff. Right? So that would be one, one consideration. Coconut water is great. Um, Gatorade is, is fine. I, I think the big thing is like, what do you enjoy? But the, the real answer is probably mostly water.
stay hydrated though. So if you hate water, find a way to flavor it or like put some lemon in it or make it so you'll drink it, right? Like I know people who legitimately don't like water, but they also can't drink like a gallon of Mountain Dew all day long. So we need to find some middle ground that like flavors your water and makes you drink it uh, so you can stay hydrated without drinking a gallon of Mountain Dew. All right, Oscar, what are the main differences from an elite runner's training program compared to an average runner's program? Brian gave a response on mileage, which is absolutely accurate. So a lot of professional runners, people who are paid to do this, will run well over 100 plus miles per week. That varies a little in the trail world because trails are a little more stressful, but elite marathoners will top out 130, 140, something like that when they're prepping for the Olympics. Most of us are not going to get there. Um, so that's a big factor. Another one's going to be intensity. So you're often going to hear about 80-20 running. Uh, Matt Fitzgerald wrote a big book on it. It's this whole concept of polarized training that Steven Seiler studied and popularized. Dude's a fantastic scientist, so nothing against it. But even he has said, I've heard in interviews, like this sometimes gets a little weird when you're talking about people who don't train as much. So we often hear about 80-20 running, but if you want to get faster, you actually have to spend a good amount of time running faster. And one of the reasons it's 80-20 for elites is when you run 10, 15, 20 hours a week, that's still at least like two hours of speed work a week. Um, if you only have five hours per week to train, and then I don't really care what your 80-20 rule says, you probably have to go higher than 20% to get faster. There's a minimum amount of effort that you need to put in. If we look at someone like Philip Skiba, who talks about training um, Olympic level marathoners and then like elite level triathletes and all this stuff, their training is intense. They spend a lot of time in lactate intervals and pushing these like six minute miles just constantly end on end. And a lot of us, like, it's not like it's easy for them they just, they do a ton of it and they cruise through it. And yes, they get a lot of slow mileage in as well. But again, they're training 15, 20 hours a week. So the proportions are just different. Christine and Christina both asked questions. So Christine asked, how do, how do I balance running with cross training, uh, strength training, cycling, et cetera? There's only so many hours of energy in a day when you work full time. Yeah, feel that. I work three jobs. I'm with you. Uh, Christina, my question is also about cross-training. What makes sense? What are the advantages and disadvantages of cross-training? And most importantly, what type of cross-training or balance training like should you use and when in the season? Advantages of cross-training. Running is really hard on your body. With cross-training, you can increase your volume of cardiovascular work without all the pounding that running requires. Big triathletes will often train 20, 30 plus hours per week. I don't know any runner who puts in 30 hours per week of running. I'm sure there might be someone, maybe Andrew Glaze, but even then I, I doubt it. It's just ridiculous. So cross training can help cardiovascular adaptations. The best way, the best way is really bike for zone two work. You're not going to have a perfect crossover, especially when we're looking at speed work. You can get some especially if you're less trained, like if you're not, if you're not well-trained, if you're completely new to sport, you've never run anything before, anything is going to make you faster. Swimming will make you faster because you're just getting fitter, right? But if you have some background, the crossover will become less and less. So bike is okay for zone two work. We saw this in the most recent Olympics. The Norwegians did 
a ton of base training and this was for skiing cross-country skiing and they did a lot of time on the bike and granted it was these athletes zone two which for us would probably be like a straight up hill climb but it was tough stair stepper could be great for steep inclines if you're training for a race it spends a lot of time like 20 40 percent grade range and your treadmill only goes to 12 percent then getting on a stair stepper could create some great climbing adaptations it's going to actually work more like strength work but it can help you very well like also cross training do it if you like it like i like to climb and do jujitsu they don't help my running they probably make it worse in many ways so be it like you're allowed to do other shit you're if unless you're paid for this then it's a whole different story but like you're allowed to do other stuff just don't overtrain yourself like find some balance and that might make your running a little worse decide whether that matters to you and then there's strength training which i don't even count as cross training like it's a different thing um you probably need some but you don't need a ton you don't need three hours per week to see benefits like you might hear and you need even less than that to maintain a lot of benefits. So maybe in your off season, if you have some big strength deficiencies and you wanna build up your legs, you might do three hours a week to build. And then you can do a ton with like two sessions of 30 to 45 minutes. And you can maintain most of that strength with one session per week of 30 to 45 minutes. It doesn't need to be a lot, especially when you're mid season. If you drop it completely, you might start to lose some of that strength, which, could be fine it can also really hurt you on the uphills Esther, would it be possible to train an average joe runner to run close to what an elite runner runs say they had no time restrictions sure why um i mean at that point you're probably going to become an elite runner one of the things that like makes these people elite runners is the, is their time right? like you can look at someone like andrew glaze who has been on the more elite circuit lately and he kind of came up and he just he just runs a lot he's an insane recovery ability and just runs um i think he just hit his like a year year straight maybe over that of like 100 mile weeks just over and over and over again and just he loves it it's what he does there's a result like that amount of time on feet really really good at running <laughs> it's it's part of it so if you have that recovery ability to run that much probably and that will probably turn you more or less into an elite runner some of that like some of that recovery ability is genetic though so be aware of that christina she knows me really well i know stress nutrition sleep all of it's important but what is your opinion for sauna physiotherapist massage and something like that cool so physiotherapist or a pt is like a medical professional you should go to one if you need one i would try to find a good one um, my dad was a PT for 40 years. It can be super helpful. Um, if you're injured, you should go see someone. Like that is what they're for. And if you're not quite sure where to start, I honestly often start with a PT because they're kind of a middle ground. Like they might, they might point you in the direction of a doctor or an orthopod, or they might point you in a direction like a personal trainer like me. Like they're kind of that middle space and they can give you a really good assessment of what's going on with your body and then point you in a good direction. So that'd be a great thing for a PT. For a PT. Some are covered by insurance, some are not. It's kind of what it is. You got to find what you can do. So um, let's talk about massage. Some studies show that it's super helpful. 
Uh, there was one where people got massages after a big rate, like a 50K, I think it was. And the people who got leg massages afterwards recovered a lot faster than those who didn't. Other studies show it does little to nothing other than make you feel better. So I don't have a great answer for like where that actually sits. I think if you enjoy them, get them. Uh, they definitely help me. I don't get them that often. It's probably once every couple of years. Probably should be more than that. Whenever I get out of them, uh, certain muscles that I tend to abuse are a lot looser and less hateful. So I think they're great. I don't know if they actually make you recover faster. They're still great. Um, sauna. Sauna is fantastic. There is endless data on sauna. There's middling data on sauna for recovery but there's great data to make sauna a wonderful thing. Um, it helps your mental health. It improves your lifespan. The, the, fin, the Finnish people love saunas. So they've shown that if you use a sauna for like 30 minutes, really hot, like 180 degree Finnish sauna for 30 minutes, um, four days a week, then you end up like increasing your lifespan a lot. It increases, it greatly decreases all-cause mortality. It's really useful for heat training. So a lot of the time you'll see runners like do a run and then pop in the sauna at the end of their run for like 20 to 30 minutes, and it can greatly increase your heat adaptation. So you could pop in there for a longer period of time, but if you do it after a run, it can be even more effective because they will, um, your heart rate and your temperature is already elevated. So basically just keeps carrying it over. And then they have shown like red light therapy and infrared. So there's some infrared saunas. There's been shown some promise in recovery, but most studies are done by people who own red light companies. So I don't fully know whether to trust them. They promise the world, right? So it does everything from increased testosterone to improve recovery, to improve your performance, to whatever. It is the laundry list of things that these companies promise are, are insane. Uh, some of them are probably true. Some of them are probably not. Um, it absolutely seems to help skin. It seems to it seems to raise testosterone if you use it properly. Um, it what's really cool is it does seem to improve performance if you shine red light, uh, red and near infrared light on sore, tired muscles prior to the thing you have to go do. So if you're kind of sore and tired, and you shine red light on your say your hamstrings for 20 minutes and then you go do a hard workout, you might get more out of that workout. So that could be useful. Um, I don't know what else there is. There's creams, CBD cream, super useful for some people. It does nothing for me. Um, that's kind of where it is. They've shown that there's a benefit to even one time a week, Jonna. So that's, yeah. And then as far as the, yeah, they've, they've shown it like it's a scaling benefit from one up to like five, six, seven times a week. So I think it does seem to top out in studies at like five to six for sauna usage, but even once a week seems to be helpful. And then there's also things like PR lotion, which has only been studied by the people who make it, but the studies look good. So I, I don't know. A lot of these things are definitely extraneous. Sauna is great. Massage seems to help. Um, red light therapy seems to work. All of it is, as she asked the question, because she knows me, is like infinitely less important than eating enough food, sleeping, and like getting enough water. But like all of these things can like help move the needle a little bit. Mobility work, also 
uh, super helpful. Um, not stretching, but like moving control through a range of motion can help quite a bit. Chloe, I would love to know if you have any tips for improving mindset around eating more. I struggle with underestimating how much food I need to perform my best. So um, get real personal real fast. So I have my own issues with eating enough. I struggle with body dysmorphia. And since I originally like lost a ton of weight in my early 20s through eating one meal per day, um, I still have some pretty hefty binging, I don't know whether to call it tendencies or abilities, um, but I can put down food whether I need it or not. And I'm not over all of that. I don't know if I ever will be. It has been over a decade since I've been trying to like process all of this stuff. It has gotten better. It's still not perfect. Um, the biggest thing I have for you is focus on your performance and trust other people. I don't trust a mirror. I think I, I almost never think I look good. I've been told I'm wrong. I don't know what else to do. So I'm getting better and faster and stronger. My weight is staying fairly stable. I focus on what I can do rather than what I look like. And some days are kind of shitty. And some days I fuck up. And some days that's intentional that I undereat. And other days I just forget because I don't have a normal hunger signal anymore after all of this. I wish I had a better answer for you know that I'm here for anyone in here whoever needs to talk about this stuff. I'm not a therapist, but I get it and I'm happy to chat. I end up working with a lot of athletes who are like post or mid therapy for eating disorders. And that's not intentional. It just happens because I think they can tell I get it and they can have like a real conversation. So it's hard. I don't really know what else to say. Uh, focus on your performance. And then you should probably, everyone should probably know that eating disorders are highly driven by dopamine as are addictions, as are the tendency to run a hundred miles in one go. So most people who do this stuff are driven, like this sport that we're all talking about are driven by dopamine in one, day or one way or another. So it makes sense that there's a lot of crossover with eating disorders and ultra runners and addictions and ultra runners. It's a brain thing. Everybody's brain likes different chemicals. And if yours, like mine, seems to really love dopamine, then you need to give that dopamine something else to do. And focusing on your performance is the best I've figured out. And then trusting other people, both finding some people to trust and then trusting them. Joanna, I have more sauna questions. And then I guess tabling into hot tubbing. Sauna after workout or whenever we can. Um, whenever you can, we'll give you the health benefits, right? So the fitness studies were completely unrelated to time. All of the like lifespan and health benefits are completely unrelated to time. It's just like, I think it was a 30, 20 to 40 minutes, somewhere in there. Um, so we'll call it 30 because it's not fresh in my brain. Four times a week, like greatly improved lifespan and like one to three times per week improved it a bit. And by a bit, it's still like 20%. And then I think over four times a week, it's like 40%. It wasn't lifespan. It was like all-cause mortality on a, on a rate of time. But like the, the numbers are unbelievable and that it has been backed up. And then sauna after a workout will improve your heat tolerance. So if you're trying to do a race for, like if you're prepping for bad water, you should do sauna after your workout because it will give you the added benefit of heat, heat tolerance. 
And then hot tub, is it at all similar? Yes, um, you will have to spend longer. So it does, it's, all of this is run through a system called heat shock proteins, which seem to be very similar to things, benefits you get from exercise. So the hotter it is, the less time you need to spend to get there. So, and please be aware there's an upper limit. If you hop into a 300 degree sauna, you're gonna cook yourself, right? Like they don't exist for a reason, but don't make them happen. Um, and you'll break the sauna. So 180 degrees is kind of your testing standard. It is hard to find a sauna. Um, sometimes it'll do that unless you own one. And then if you're using a hot tub, it doesn't need to be close to that temperature because water is a better conductor than air but it does seem to be that you need to spend more time in a hot tub. So I think it was like, if it were 30 minutes in a sauna, it'd be something like 40 minutes in a 103 degree bath or, so, or hot tub or something like that, just to like give you an, a concept. So it, yes, it's still effective. You need to spend a bunch of time in there, like get pruny. Next question I had from the group, Sarah, when doing hill repeats, is it better to power hike a 10% grade or run a 5% grade? I could probably run the steeper hill a couple times, but it would definitely become a power hike before I was through all my repeats. Good question. You should do the thing that is more like relevant to your race and specifically your A race. So when I, before life got weird and I had planned to run an earlier race this year, it was much, it was shorter, but a bigger incline. So I was training more hill. Um, now that I'm doing the dead horse, it's like it's like a 3% average grade or something. It's really cruisy. So I'm doing really small hill stuff and trying to run that rather than trying to learn to walk um, up a bigger grade. Most of the time, no matter what, the answer is going to be what is specific to your race. And that is very true when it comes to hills. Be aware, though, <laughs> that a lot of those adaptations, one, can come on quickly, but two, like, will also, like, create more fitness. So if you have a B race that isn't particularly hilly and then an A race that is, like I would start training hills. Um, I'd probably do like a lower grade hill earlier to like boost your fitness. And then like, as you get closer to your A race, like crank it. And then finally about 12 questions from Dina. So let's rapid fire these. These last couple came in late. So I'm just kind of doing these off the cuff. Dina, in a typical day, when is the ideal time for you to work out or run? Does it matter? Do we, mm, pause. So no, um, it doesn't matter. You should be consistent. You should do it when you feel kind of good. They've shown that your testosterone is technically slightly higher on noon. So if you're like trying to maximize, then you should probably lift in the middle of the day for strength training purposes. You're, you're splitting hairs. Like if you try and maximize your timing and then lose even like one session over a training cycle, you've probably lost all benefits from trying to maximize your timing. Just go when you can. It needs to fit. That said, if you're training later in the day, eat throughout your day. You need to fuel your workouts. I know you have a question about this in a second for mornings, but like for me, I, my first client is at 5.30 at the gym in the morning. I'm not training before that. So I tend to train after. I'm terrible <laughs> at fueling while I train because there's no food allowed on the floor. So 
I end up a little underfed as a result. Like I need to put down some quickly digesting food afterwards. If you are able to eat at your desk throughout your day or like fuel well during lunch, you should do that if you have to train after work. Um, do we need to eat before a workout or a run if it's the first thing we do after waking up? How much do we need to eat? How long before a workout or a run? Cool. Um, no. Uh, depends how long you're running. I, I think depending on which camp you're in, you're going to get crucified for this one way or the other, right? So like there's the people that say you don't need to eat at all and you should fast running. And then there's the, the other people that say like, seem to intimate that if you ever run without food in your system, you're immediately going to die and all your muscles are going to fall apart. Both of those are insane. Um, you need to take a middle ground and realize that like people have shit to do <laughs> and you kind of got to work with what you have. Sometimes your workout will be a little better if you fuel it. If it's under an hour, it doesn't matter all that much. Um, if it's speed work, you should fuel it. And that's kind of what I got. So how much do you need to eat? Depends on how long your workout is and how hard you're going to push. Um, I mean, you can treat it like a long run, right? Or you could like put down, put down 30 grams of carbs really quickly. Like that's usually a serving of any of these things, be it tailwind or like it is a banana. It is like half a potato. Any of these things are about 20 to 30 grams of carbohydrate. And that will be enough to help you through about an hour. It's not enough to completely fuel you, but it's enough to like top your glycogen stores off a little bit. And how long before a workout or a run? Ideally 20 to 30 minutes, which is why I struggle to tell people to wake up earlier when they're already depleted on sleep to fuel themselves prior to running, right? Like the actual answer I would say is wake up, <laughs> eat some food with your coffee, like eat a banana with your coffee and get out the door. And by the time you're done with your like hopefully 15 minute kind of joggy, easy warm up, it should already be pretty much through your system and you're good to go. Like that's absolutely what it is. Like wake up, slam a gel, have some coffee and some water, and like get out the door. You don't need to cut your sleep even further. And this is kind of why I struggle with the like you must eat for before every workout thing. Cause if you're sacrificing sleep to wake up earlier to get food, that is not a good message. So we need to figure out like how to help that and make that work a little better. And usually that is taking in a small amount of food right at the beginning of your workout and letting it digest as you get through your warm-up. Do we take a pre-workout if you want to? What if we drink two cups of coffee before getting out the door? Is it okay to combine the two or do we take one after the other? I, I don't care, it's up to you. Um, too much caffeine is gonna affect your sleep, so don't drink too much caffeine. That's what it comes down to. Uh, if you feel good and you're good doing it, then roll with it. Um, you obviously don't need, you don't need to do a pre-workout. It can help a little bit because a lot of those things will have some like nitrogen boosters, but for the most part, don't stress yourself about it. Um, I wouldn't take both. But then again, I work with people who absolutely take both. They're, it's what, it's what it is. Uh, I wouldn't. Do we take an after workout? And if yes, what is it? Protein and carbohydrate. Eat both after you're done. Um, 30, like, 30-ish grams of protein and 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate is a great way to finish your workout. Protein is probably more important unless you have a training within 24 hours. 
protein will help stop the muscle breakdown and like instigate that recovery. That's why it is so important post-workout or else you will have that carryover for a while. The like whole like bodybuilder thing of like you're missing gains is nonsense, but the breakdown will continue. So make it stop. So some protein will help you out. And then the carbohydrate, if you were going to train again within 24 hours, which in my experience, a lot of ultra runners like train every day, then you probably want to get some carbohydrate in to start the glycogen replenishment process so that you can train a little better your next day. So oatmeal and a protein shake, uh, yogurt and uh, banana, um, rice and some chicken. I, any of these things would work really well. But yes, protein and carbohydrate. Do we need additional supplements, vitamins? And if yes, which ones and where do we buy them from? Um, I don't know. And I'm not going to make this recommendation over a general Zoom. I will tell you some statistics that you're welcome to like do with what you will and what I take. Um, I take some fish oil that is high in DHA and EPA. I take vitamin D3 because I work inside a lot. I take magnesium because I don't, I, I eat a lot of green things. I should eat more and I, I don't. So I take some magnesium. I take some vitamin C because it seems to help with immunity. That's it. That's what I take. Uh, a multivitamin is not a bad idea depending on what you eat. If you're a vegetarian or vegan, you might not get enough B vitamins. So B complex is probably good. I tend to not split your B vitamins because they kind of, they can compete with each other. So just take a good complex. Your P will be golden after you take that. But that is because B vitamins are not particularly absorbable. So that is why every time you read a B vitamin, uh, it has like a thousand, uh, two thousand percent of something in it because it needs to feed you a ton of it for any of it to get absorbed. And then you pee a lot of it out. Vitamin C is fine. It, it helps with a little bit with immunity. Uh, vitamin D, I think like 80% of people are at least somewhat deficient. So take some. You can absolutely take too much. It is hard to. Uh, you should get your blood levels tested before taking anything. Magnesium, 50 to 60% of the country is deficient in magnesium because we don't eat green things. So that could help. Magnesium citrate is the most common form. It is a better laxative than it is a magnesium supplement. You should probably get something like magnesium glycinate or magnesium malate. I get magnesium glycinate from pure encapsulations and take one of them a day. Uh, magnesium malate, double wood has a really good one. It requires a lot more pills. So I just take the less pills one. Good supplement sources. I trust the company Pure Encapsulations. I trust the company Thorn, T-H-O-R-N-E, and a couple other ones, but those are like my big two if I'm going to point you somewhere. They at least have <laughs> the stuff in their pills that they say they have in their pills. I don't know if you need any of them, but you at least know what you're buying, which is not always true. Is protein powder from Costco okay, or is it better if we buy the one from a specialty store? Okay. Um, if you digest it well, it's fine. That's all I got. Um, if you have any digestive struggles with it, then you should buy a higher quality protein. That's going to be your biggest issue. If you have any lactose 
or sorry, if you have any dairy intolerances, then you probably want to get like a, if you have a very slight dairy intolerance that is exacerbated by like whey protein, you get a very strict whey protein isolate. Try that. Um, most people don't do very well with casein protein. I think it's a waste of your money. Um, and then if you really struggle with like dairy completely, then get a vegan protein. Um, Organifi salt's a very good one. It is not cheap. Uh, there are some other, other good, I think Vegas is fine. Um, Orgain is fine. There's some like weird metal toxicity in some of them. So just kind of be, be careful. But it is, if you can digest it okay and it doesn't cause issues for you, lovely. How much do we need to drink water in the summer? Probably a lot. <laughs> You're an athlete running a lot. Um, your first morning pee should always be like light yellow. It should probably stay light yellow throughout your day. It shouldn't be gold. It shouldn't be clear. Your weight should stay pretty stable morning to morning. That will indicate that you're hydrated. If you're thirsty, you should drink. It's called your what status, W-U-T. And if those three things stay stable, like you should be pretty good. One good recommendation is half of your body weight in ounces plus about 15. That applies to athletes pretty well. So for me, it's about 100 ounces a day. I actually know that's a little shallow. I need to aim for closer to a gallon to stay well hydrated, but it is very like personally dependent. And if you have a saltier diet, you can get away with a little less water, whatever. Um, those are your general recommendations. What's the calorie intake while training for an ultra and how much of it should be protein per day? I cannot answer that question for you at all. Like what's the calorie intake while training for an ultra? Like mine's probably 3000 plus a day. Um, I've trained people that's closer to two. Like it's very, it's very personally dependent based on your background. Your weight should stay pretty stable. You should still have a, like, you should still have a libido. You shouldn't, like if you're a woman, you shouldn't go amenorrheic. If you're still like, if you're pre-menopause, you should um, not be constantly groggy or tired or struggling or sore. You should have uh, good sleep. Like all of these signals are all of these things are signals of good hormone function. If you are starting to lose all of these things, then your hormones are starting to have a problem and you're probably not eating enough calories. And a lot of these things will show up prior to... Um, even weight difference. But yeah, like for me, the first two things that go when I know I'm, when I'm underfed, the libido completely disappears and I, I get real bitchy. <laughs> yeah. So that's, those are the big two. Some people get a lot of brain fog. Like it's very, it's very personally dependent, but you should feel pretty good. You're probably tired because you're training a lot, but you should feel pretty good. Your weight should stay pretty stable. And how much of it should be in protein per day? So protein is uh, not, should not be measured in percentage of your overall calories. It should be a fairly static number per day. It should be about 0.7 to one gram of protein per pound of lean body weight. So like for me, I weigh 175, 180, depending on the day. My lean body weight is probably in the like 150 range. So I aim for that. I'm fairly lean. Like I could get away with anywhere from like 120 to 180 and be pretty, pretty okay. Um, 150 is a good target for me. I, I don't think going below hundred grams per day is a good idea for anybody unless you're a child. So that would be a very good minimum. And if you're a like full grown male who weighs 200 pounds, cause you have a bunch of muscle mass, that is definitely not enough. So it needs to be relevant to your size.
right, I'll, we're pushing an hour. That is all the questions that were in the group. So anybody who is currently still on with us, thank you five for hanging around. Have any questions, pop them in the chat, raise your hand, uh, turn your mic on, whatever you need to do. We're gonna hang out for like 30 more seconds unless someone speaks up. Cool, thank y'all, appreciate it. Thanks for hanging around. There will be a replay posted of this in the group. Uh, not tonight, I need food and sleep. So yeah, y'all are welcome. Yeah, thanks for hanging around, I appreciate it. Um, I'm happy to do this. I love doing this. It's kind of kind of my jam. I wish I could do it more. So we're gonna do these same style every week. Um, next week's big focus is gonna be hydration and nutrition. So we'll see if you have any questions on those. All right, have a good night and I'll talk to you later. See ya. Thank you for listening to the show. To be clear, I'm not a doctor nor a registered dietitian and nothing you heard was medical advice. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training regimen. If you enjoy the podcast or found it useful, please take a couple seconds to give it a rating or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And if you want more of this information, please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition Group on Facebook. You'll be in good company with other like-minded people who like to do hard stuff outside.